Meet me in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 as we continue our series. It's great to see my mother here, my beautiful wife, and my brothers and sisters in Christ. That actually wrong. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse number 20, and I'll be reading down to verse 30. Then he began, he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Caruzan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sidon, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sidon than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to preach on the topic, Jesus is calling you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious Holy Spirit. Now I pray, God, that you would anoint me to speak your words, not mine. Hide me, crucify my flesh. Speak through me in such a way that your people will indeed be edified, that Satan and his demons will be horrified, that your name would be glorified, and that sinners would be evangelized. In Jesus' name we do pray, the people of God say amen. Have you ever felt restless? I'm not talking about not getting enough sleep at night, although some of us can use that, right? You can get a full hour or eight hours of sleep and still be uneasy within your soul. You know deep down in your heart that God is calling you to something more, more of him, more of the gospel, more of a direction of gospel-centeredness, more of developing the reflex of adoring Christ. 
Have you ever felt the pressure to measure up to someone else's expectations to the point that those expectations seem to overpower you? That was the original readers of Matthew. At the heart of many is the pressure to either perform or pretend. but God is calling us to authentic living in Christ. Or maybe you sense the conviction that God wants you to rest in the gospel. Are you burdened by life, buried by death, fed up with coworkers, drama in your home, drama in your marriage, drama with your children, feeling stressed out? Jesus is calling you. Or perhaps you're content with the status quo, comfortable with how things are going. Don't feel the need to repent. You can't remember the last time you really prayed. And you have no sense of being broken before God. In fact, Jesus is on the back burner of your mind. My friend, Jesus is calling you. Wherever you are in this spectrum, just like the first century believers of this account, Matthew's account, in Matthew's day, Jesus is calling you. He's calling you and I, or you and me, to experience profound rest in him. And as we continue our study through the book of Matthew, it seems that Jesus turns the volume up a bit to pronounce judgment on those who have taken the good news of Jesus Christ for granted, wanting nothing to do with him. So on the heels of Jesus confronting the crowd earlier in this chapter, as Tim faithfully preached, he now pronounces judgment on all of those who have rejected the gospel. Let's walk through three main points the Lord has given me. The first point is the indictment of those who reject Christ. Secondly, the delight, the delight of those who receive Christ. And last, the invite of those who still need Christ. Let's look at the first point. The indictment of those who reject Christ. It's heartbreaking, but it serves as a warning to the readers. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his miracles, mighty miracles, had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Caruza. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Saddam, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. This judgment that Jesus pronounced is more severe than one could imagine. Geographically, Caruzan and Bethsaida are, were cities located near the Sea of Galilee in Jerusalem, adjacent to Capernaum, known as the headquarters where Jesus performed most of his miracles. In fact, these were cities where Jesus called 
his first disciples. Capernaum was the hometown of apostles Peter, James, Andrew, John, and even Matthew, the tax collector. Mark records that Jesus was at home in Capernaum preaching to the people. So why is this so significant? It becomes obvious why Jesus pronounced a more severe judgment on these cities compared to Tyre, Tyre Sodom, and Sodom, by which, by the way, were all pagan cities that God reduced to ashes because of their ratchetness. Tyre is known for its oppression of God's people, and Sodom is known or notorious for paganism. Yet neither of these Gentile cities will experience the weight of judgment that Caruzan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum will experience on that dreadful day. Things become more intense when Jesus zeroes in his indictment on the people living in Capernaum. Why? What was so special about Capernaum? And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre, in, in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What a prophecy. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sidon than for you. The Messiah unleashes his vertical Capernaum for making the prideful assumption that her religiousness wasn't good enough for her to get into heaven. But on the contrary, Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades. Now I ask myself, well, what in the world is Hades? Hades, in Greek, means a place of the dead. It is a holding place before the final judgment, alluding to the pit or abyss where Satan was cast down for being prideful, according to Isaiah chapter 14. Yet in Revelations chapter 20, verses 14 through 15, John tells us that on the day of judgment, that death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. All of this is disturbing and terrifying imagery of eternal conscious torment for those who reject the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I once heard that there will be people in hell who think that they deserve to be in heaven and people in heaven who know that they deserve to be in hell. The only real qualification for getting into heaven is to know that you're not qualified. Amen? See, folks, on that dreadful day, there's only one of two ways you will stand before God on that day of judgment. Before you stand, you'll stand before this holy God on the day of judgment, either in the righteousness of Jesus Christ or your own righteousness. So I asked myself, why was this judgment so severe? You see, Caruso and Bethsaida and Capernaum were clearly places where Jesus did most of his teaching. 
He preached the Sermon on the Mount there. He called his first disciples from there. He performed most of his miracles from there, verse 20. They saw more miracles than anyone else in their day. They knew more scriptures than anyone else. They were more religious than everyone else during that day. They had more opportunities to respond to the gospel than anyone else in their regions. They had more of Jesus and the disciples than anyone else in Palestine because they lived there. They had more revelation than Tyre and Sidon. You see, these Jewish cities have more light than any of these Gentile cities mentioned here, which makes them more responsible to God. And we've been going through this book, and I can't help but to think about how diving into God's word, acquiring more knowledge makes us more accountable. That's why every time I read that scripture in James chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers, for you shall receive what? A stricter judgment. Why? Because we know too much. You see, there are varying degrees of punishment and severity because to whom much is given, much is required. The servant who knew more of his master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many stripes. Why? More exposure, more knowledge equals more accountability. Can't say I didn't know. Why well, didn't hear it? And yet Jesus does not condemn these cities because of their indifference to John the Baptist, calling him demon-possessed. Nor were they judged by Jesus for calling him a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. No. Matthew tells us that Jesus indicted them because they did not do one thing. They did not Repent, and the honeymoon was over. You see, the message of the gospel was the same from the very beginning of John the Baptist's ministry in preparation for the coming Messiah. Even though earlier in this chapter they talked bad about John the Baptist and Jesus, they missed the message earlier in Jesus' ministry, in John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist was preaching for people to repent of their sins. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus shows up after John the Baptist is incarcerated for the faith, he begins essentially calling people to the same message that John the Baptist preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I asked myself, what exactly does Jesus mean by repent? In the New Testament, the key term for repentance is metanoia. Everybody said metanoia. The two Greek words put together, metanoia. It means the change of mind followed by a change of action. You see, in Matthew's account, in this context, repentance is a turning away from sin and self while faith is turning to God in Christ. So we understand that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You really can't have one without the other. 
It is believing and following Jesus. Not just believing and going back to your BC days before Christ's days. But let me see if I can make this plain. Repentance, it's like if you're traveling southbound all your life towards sin and self, when you meet Jesus, that means you, you, you get off the exit immediately and you start heading northbound towards God in Christ. And yet there's, there are people right now in the church that said that they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, yet they're still going southbound. Wow, is that possible? Do you really know him? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about heading in the right direction. Yet having said this, it's important to note that repentance is a gift. Paul said that, that it is the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. It is not something that we can work up for ourselves. It is not turning over a new leaf. It is turning away from sin and turning towards God in Christ, fueled by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? In essence, these folks took the gospel for granted by refusing to respond in repentance. So what's the verdict? Most of us know John 3.16. Can we quote that, John 3.16? For... Now, can anyone quote John 3.17? Not too many, only a few, maybe a lot of you. But John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And in verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. We just sung that song earlier. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only unique Son of God. Verse 19. This is the verdict, John says. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now you jump down to verse 35 and 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on that person. It was J.I. Packer who said that nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. God never prepared hell for humans. The scriptures tell us that God prepared hell for the devil and his imps. But there's enough room for people to go there when they reject the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Our hearts are breaking. My heart is breaking at the thought of individual loved ones who have refused to come to Christ. And right now, you know somebody who does not know Jesus. Perhaps you're interacting with them on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Maybe at work, maybe at home, maybe in your community. We need to pray for them because the consequences are more severe than we think when a person rejects the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. You see, these few verses serves really as an indictment for these particular Jewish communities, but it serves as a warning to the readers that there is still time to repent, to metanoia, to change your mind, and to change your actions by believing in Jesus. You see, the gospel of Christ is not lightweight. Not only do we not see the indictment of those who reject Christ, secondly, we notice the delight of those who receive Christ is breathtaking. Observe how the tone of Jesus suddenly changes. How he tunes us into the heart of God the Father. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise in understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There is something so breathtaking in these words, isn't it? In the midst of this, those indicted, indictment on charges for rejecting the Messiah, a beam of light shines bright as Jesus praises the Father for those who actually get it. They receive the revelation of God the Father through Jesus Christ. They respond to the gospel. So we delight in the unique Son of God who praises the Father for those who get it. Matthew is allowing us to eavesdrop on this profound communion between God the Father and God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. Notice how God the Father is in complete control despite those who have intentionally rejected his Son. God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is not surprised or even caught off guard. He, he knew that they were going to reject him. Just read Romans chapter 1 for your devotions. Yet the scripture lets us know that God is sovereign. While I was reading my devotional the other day, I came across these words. You can rest in knowing that God is always ahead of you and always prepares you before you walk in them. He prepares you for things before you even walk in them. He made all things before he made you. He loved you before you gave your heart to him. He came to you before you searched for him. He possessed all things before you had a need. He knew all things before you had a question. He finished his work of redemption before he began his work in you. God the Father is sovereign. 
You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Those who are wise and so-called intelligent were unresponsive to the gospel. These were the scuffers that Tim talked about. Later in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks of sending his prophets, the wise people and scribes, as messengers to unresponsive Israel. Notice the reversal of roles. The little children receive the truth while the wise and intelligent remain in the dark. God the Father flipped the script. The first will be last and the last will be first. The professing wise of Jesus' day had careful rules for interpreting scripture and the sayings of the wise that had gone before them. You see, they were the top dogs in all things spiritual. They were the religious elite. But Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, he said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think that in searching them and in reading them and studying them, you think you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, they knew the word of God, but they didn't know the God of the word. And it's easy to get caught up in just reading scripture for scripture's sake and not realizing that every time I read this word, it catapults me into the presence of God. When I read his words, do I just see words or do I see him? Because ultimately the word of God is leading me into a personal relationship with the Lord. Jesus shared many parables with the outsiders because they didn't get it. He wanted them to get it, but the ones who actually got it were those who actually pressed in to become his disciples. They dug in, they asked the meaning of the parables, and they became his followers. You see, the little children got it. Out of the mouth of babes you have declared praise, the psalmist says. The children here are the disciples of Christ. They not only get the gospel, but they grow deep in the gospel throughout their lives. John states that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. John breaks out in delight over the extravagant love that the Father has for us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Here's where the adoration reflex kicks in that Brian Davis talked about two Sundays ago. Behold, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when we see him, we, feel we shall see him as he is. We shall become just like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, John was trying to grapple with a word in the Greek language for what kind of love is this? Extravagant love. He couldn't even really find what manner of love is this that the Father has even lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it does not know him. 
Beloved, now we are the children of God. Right now, you are a child of God, and you, get, you have the privilege and the opportunity to call God your Abba. That's what Jesus has done for us. He says, when you pray, say, our Father. That's powerful. Jesus says to his Father, it was your gracious will. See, the gift of salvation comes by God's grace through his revelation, not by human cleverness, not by our works of righteousness. See, we get the delight in the ultimate revelation of God the Father. And then Jesus' own self-understanding, guess what he said? He said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Notice how John echoes these kinds of words in his narrative in many respects. For instance, only Jesus reveals God the Father to us. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was what? The Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. All things have been made through him. Then when you jump down, it says the Word became what? flesh and dwelt among us. Then when you jump even further down, it tells us that no one has ever seen God. But Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Jesus is the exegesis of God. I know that's a deep term. But exegesis means to pull out what's there. Jesus fully explains the heart and mind of God. If you ever want to know what God the Father is like, just look at his son Jesus. He is the full manifestation of God the Father. He is the imaging out and the pouring out of God the Father. Ironically, we're also drawn into salvation by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John chapter 6, verse 44. And Jesus says, I will raise him up at the last day. Likewise, Christ said in the prior verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. In a parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Luke cited another critical detail that Matthew omits. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, the scripture says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What's going on here? We're also drawn into salvation by the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 3, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is what? Lord, except by the Spirit of God. So who's doing the drawing? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing, one God. I know it's baffling. But here lies the basic premises of all God's actions. Are you ready? From the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Say that with me. From the Father, 
through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Paul said, through Christ, we both have access to one Spirit, to the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, many of us have to realize that we really have a Trinitarian salvation. When we were lost in sin, in the very depths of our depravity, our God acted in, a, in every person of his being to save us. The Father gave the Son. The Son offered his life on the cross, and the Holy Spirit brought us to Jesus. Wow! We were so lost in our sins that it took every member of the Godhead to save us. Why? Because he said, let us make man in our image. So the Trinity comes after us to save us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I've been recently rocked by a classic book called Delighting in the Trinity. Michael Reeves hit a nerve with me when he was writing this, and I, I just couldn't help but to show you this quote. It said, the Father sent his Son to make himself known, meaning not that he wanted to simply download some information about himself, but that the love the Father eternally had for the Son might be in those who believe in him, and that we might enjoy the Son as the Father always has. Then he goes on to say, ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship, his love for the world is really the overflow of his mighty love for his son. Do you understand that? We are extensions of God's love. When you look at what John wrote in his other, John chapter 17, Jesus' other high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. See my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me when? Before the creation of the world. What? Notice how he closes this prayer in verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you sent me, verse 26, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. That's breathtaking. You see, God did not need to create us so that he can have someone to love as if God was needy. God created us as an extension and expression of the profound love that always existed within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Way back in eternity, loving and adoring one another, glorifying one another. Existed that you would love me, he says, that you would the glory you have given me because you love me. You love me before the creation of the world. 
That's profound. You mean to tell me that creation and salvation is a product of God's amazing love? That's right. That changes everything. That's why if you, if you don't really understand, pray for understanding about God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one God. Pray about that. It has once been said that the person who tries to fully explain that will lose their mind, but the persons who deny it will lose their souls. He who does not believe that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh, flesh is not of God, but is of the spirit of the Antichrist. Not only do we delight in Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God the Father, but Jesus Christ really is the only way to God the Father. Jesus said in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Some people believe that all religions are basically the same. And you may say those people are very sincere. Yet they, may, they are really sincerely wrong. All roads do not lead to God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, Jesus preached, in no uncertain terms, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and only few who find it. The path to God is not a road, nor is it a place. It's a person. Consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. What? Very exclusive claims. If words mean anything, this is an utter exclusive claim by our Lord. Without him and apart from him, there is no way to God the Father in heaven. Eternal life is not a destination, but a person. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I once heard that every other religion is man working his way to God. But Christianity is God working his way to man. And if you decide that Jesus is not for you, God doesn't have a plan B. Sorry. Jesus is calling you. Will you respond to him as his children, wide-eyed and mystified, staring at the beauty of our king? Yes, Jesus presents a tension that exists between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Because God the Father chooses. God the Son also chooses. God the Holy Spirit chooses. But you still have a choice. So we see the indictment of those who rejected Christ is heartbreaking. But the delight of those who receive Christ is breathtaking. Jesus is calling you. Then we see the invite of those who still need Christ. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as Jesus calls, he invites us to simply come to him. Gives us three action words. Come, take, and learn. Everybody say that with me. Come, take, and learn. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The term heavy laden indicated at some time in the past, a great load had been dumped on a person, and the individual was continually carrying that load. You see, Jesus' listeners were exhausted from trying to measure up to the expectations of the law interpreted by the religious elite of that day. In fact, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees got an Academy Award for best performances in self-righteousness, but fell miserably to acknowledge God's righteous one. Yet Jesus tells us that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus is calling. Notice Jesus did not say come to these set of doctrines. He did not say come to the Torah. He did not say come to the traditional interpretations of the Torah. Jesus says, come to me. When my heart is overwhelmed, David said, what? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You see, the end of self is the beginning of God. And when there's uneasiness within my soul, it's because I have not come to the end of myself. I still want to be dominant. I still want to be in control. Resting in Christ is when you come to the end of yourself and your personal means of self-salvation and rest completely in the work of Christ's salvation for you on the cross. And of course, this at this point, in this juncture, is deeply prophetic. It was pointing to Jesus dying on their behalf. You see, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Are you ready to come to the end of yourself in order to meet Christ? Jesus is calling. He says, come and I will give you rest. This is a rest of salvation. You see, this is where grace comes in at. Grace can be offensive to people who trust in their own efforts as a means of salvation. Yet grace is a free gift of God. We can do nothing to earn it. The Hebrew writer says, everyone who comes to God must believe that he is God and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Must believe, coming, believing. See, at that time, the religious leaders were telling people to do. You have to do these things in order for God to accept you. But Jesus was telling them, done. It's finished. 
come to me and I will give you rest. The Pharisees and teachers of the law made it difficult for people to follow God based on their misinterpretation of the Torah. And we see that according to Matthew chapter 23. We see Jesus pronouncing judgment on the scribes and Pharisees as he forewards his disciples about them. For they preach and do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves would even lift a finger to move any of those loads. When Jesus said, come to me, he means that the pressure is off. You don't have to perform or pretend any longer. The pressure's off. You don't have to try to measure up to earn God's favor. The pressure is off. It's almost like Nick Falls being unconditionally accepted by all his teammates, even if he didn't pull the team through last week. We still accept you, and we still love you. Okay, bad example. <laughs> Some people are looking forward to seeing the game later on and they will find out. But I'm learning that one of the greatest things God delivers you and I from is the struggle to save ourselves. I can handle this. I got enough money in my bank account. I got enough resources. I know how to do this myself. I don't need any help. But we have to understand that salvation is a work of rest. It's a completed rest. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's a total rest. Nothing needs to be done to improve it. It's a final rest. Nothing needs to happen to change it. The rest of salvation frees you and I from the bondage of trying harder to be good enough to gain God's favor. We can never measure up. That's why Jesus did it for us. We rest in his finished work. Which means we receive salvation as a free gift. Given to you by God's grace. See we struggle with these messages. Trying harder would just be better. Do better. But Jesus is saying what? Jesus is saying I've done it. Come to me and I will give you rest. See, it was reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And there's only one requirement for enjoying God's grace. And that's being broke. Let me qualify myself, not broke financially, but broken spiritually. Jesus says, all those who are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not only do we need to come and believe in order to receive this rest, but Jesus also says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now look this word up, yoke. It was a wooden frame used by farmers in Palestine to join two animals, usually together, in order to pull heavy loads. Jesus was using it as a metaphor 
for one person subjecting themselves to another. It, in a metaphorical sense, the Torah is described as the yoke that a, a Jewish student would take up to learn and follow its teachings. So they understood that back in that culture. When you say you're taking up the yoke, you're taking up the Torah to learn its teachings. Do, you, do we understand what this means? Jesus was saying, take my yoke upon you. Jesus was in essence saying, I am a human equivalent of the Torah. And no, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is saying that I am the, the living word incarnate. I am wisdom incarnate. I am the word made flesh. I am the author and the final authority of the Torah and all the scriptures. Take my yoke upon you and learn me. Become a student of me and you will find what your soul is in desperate need of. Rest. This makes a lot of sense in light, in light of what the Hebrew writer says. There remains yet a rest for the people of God and that rest is in his living word. Are you feeling restless? When was the last time you were really in the word of God? When was the last time you were really deep, steep in prayer? Take my yoke upon you and learn. Jesus is telling them, no, listen, listen. This is a game changer. See, it's hard to take up the yoke of Christ and still travel in the same direction. Or the, wrong, the direction that he met you when you were going the wrong direction. When you take up the yoke of Christ, you travel in the same direction that Christ is traveling in. Where he goes, I will go. I will follow him. To take up the yoke is automatically to take up repentance. To take up the yoke is to take up your cross and follow him. To take up the yoke of Christ is to respond instantly to the authoritative command of Christ to follow him. We take up the yoke of Christ in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. When Jesus called Matthew to follow him, Matthew was sitting at the tax collector booth, minding his business, doing his work. And when Jesus said to him two words, follow me, Matthew instantly got up, left everything on the table, and started following Jesus. That's taking up the yoke. And he says, take up the yoke, my yoke, learn from me. The actual word is learn me. See, discipleship, this is discipleship at its best. Discipleship is a lifelong process of learning how to love as God requires. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is not burdensome, like the religious leaders made major demands. Take up the yoke of Christ automatically makes you and I a student of Christ. You become a disciple of Christ at the moment of conversion, not later. Some people think, well, you know what, I got saved, but you know, later on I'm thinking about becoming a disciple. No, it doesn't happen. You don't have that option. There's no artificial separation between salvation and discipleship. 
Believing in Christ and following Christ are two sides of the same coin. Jesus told his first century followers, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately you are made a fisher of men the moment that you are called into salvation. Discipleship does not begin later, but it begins now when you receive Christ as your Savior. You might even be a babe as a disciple of Christ, called to drink the pure milk of God's word and still follow him. You are a disciple. In the first lessons that the master teaches his disciples, he says, take my yoke and learn, learn me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. For he says, I am lowly in heart. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, what Jesus does is he catapults us back to the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Just think of the utter humility of Jesus lowering himself down just to get to a point where he can relate us to God the Father in a very intimate way. The question is, are you hearing his voice? Are you exposed to his revelation, his gospel truth? Are you in his word? Are you connecting with your heavenly father in the way that Jesus did when he went to him in prayer? Come and take up the yoke of Christ and you will find rest for your souls. Christ will literally bring rest into your soul. In the Old Testament, rest was a place of promise. But in the New Testament, we realize that rest is a person. Learn Christ and you will find deep R-E-M soul rest. That's rapid eye movement. Deep rest in Christ. When we came to Christ, he gave us rest for our souls. This is a rest of surrender and obedience. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. We need to go deeper and deeper and deeper, submitting to Christ's lordship so that we can experience the rest of God. See, we come to Christ and we're saved by grace through faith and God gives us his rest. But when we start to take up the yoke and we follow him, we start to experience that rest. See, there's a difference between having peace with God and having the peace of God. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's salvation. But then when you read in Philippians chapter 4, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, to let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That is a peace of sanctification. That's when you begin to experience the profound rest and peace of God. favorite theologian, St. Augustine, said, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our true rest in you. You see, what, what does it mean to really rest? That word actually comes back from the Old Testament. When God was creating the world, speaking everything into existence, and what did he do? When he spoke the stars and spoke everything into existence, he said what? It is good. Every time God created, he said it is good. But then suddenly when God condescends 
and creates man from the dust of the ground with his very own hands. He breathes into him the breath of life. And he becomes a living soul. And then God says, it is very good. And the Bible says he rested on the seventh day. Now, why did God rest? God did not rest because he was tired. God rested because he knew that we would need that rest. So what are we resting in? We're resting in God saying, it is very good. That's what true rest is. You don't have to do anything. It's finished. I've done the work. Rest in me. Doesn't mean being lazy. But it just means that I've given you everything you need in me. Rest in me. And when Jesus was dying on the cross for our sins, between those two thieves, Jesus said what? He bowed his head and said, it is finished. Everything that you need for your salvation is finished. The Bible says in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Two weeks ago, I was out with Danny as I closed. And we were out during our lunch break just sharing Christ with people who are lost. And I remember coming across this one guy, and I asked the evangelistic question, the EE question. I said, do you know for certain that if you were to die today that you would make it into heaven? And he says, man, I know I definitely wouldn't make it. I said, why? He says, because I have a lot of demons. I said, you have a lot of demons? But guess what? I, I interpreted that to mean that he has a lot of sin. And I said, guess what? All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Not one of us is righteous. So I piqued his interest and we started talking. So we got into the conversation. He said he grew up in the church, but he doesn't really believe in all this stuff any longer. So he said to me, I don't know why I stopped to talk to you, but now that I think about it, I know why. I was watching a movie and I've been watching this movie for the past couple of weeks called Left Behind series. Have you heard of that? I said, yes. You've been watching the movie, and that movie is based on a rapture taking place and people being left behind. They still have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. You see, in his mind, he was thinking, is that true? Is that real? I said, what if it's real? What if, what if there's a rapture and God raptures up the entire church and then you're left behind? He was thinking, you know what? Then maybe I still have an opportunity to respond to the gospel later. Maybe not now. I can respond. Then I asked him a question that stunted him. I said, what would happen if you died sooner than the rapture? And you stood before God in the day of judgment. It's too late now. And he realized that in that moment, it was too late. Yeah can't play around with this. It's not a game. The Hebrew writer says today, the moment you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You say, I, I hear you, but I'm saved. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Okay? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the days? Yes, I've done that. I believe it's true. Okay? That's good. Are you on northbound or southbound? Are you still going on southbound? Well, I feel like 
there are days where I am going on southbound. To be honest with you, I, I don't recall too many times where I'm on northbound. I don't really find myself in the word of God. I don't really find myself praying. I don't really find myself seeking after God. I don't really have a desire for this stuff. I just come. Jesus is calling you right now. If you hear you need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, know that God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. So much so that when you place your faith in him, he will save you for all of eternity. If you're here today, and I'm going to make this call to you. If you're here, you never surrendered yourself to Jesus. Listen, I'd rather have Jesus and not need him than to need him and not have him. I don't want to stand on the day of judgment knowing all that I know about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all that I've been taught from God's word and not be certain of my eternal salvation. If you're here today, you're not certain where you'll spend your eternity. I challenge you. I encourage you. I beg of you. Meet us up here after service. In, in, in your heart. Because nobody can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God. In your heart, if you want to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we give the invitation to you today. The moment you hear his voice, today it's yours. Not a place, not a path, but the way, the truth, and the life. A person. His name is Jesus. Jesus is calling you. Father, we thank you, we love you, we glorify you even now. And I thank you for that gentleman who never came to you. I pray that at some point he surrenders his heart to you, that he will confess you as Lord and Savior, and that he will become your child. Father, I pray that these words will seek deep down into our hearts and that we will find the rest that our souls are in desperate need of. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Saints of God, say amen.